welcome to the first episode of the Tribulation Podcast. I'm Jamin, and in this small series of podcasts, me and my friends, Solomon, Lloyd, Sean, and Malachi, will broadcast a story about the injustices done to Native Americans on U.S. soil, and what changes we can make to improve and negate these injustices. Let's get started. In this episode, I will be discussing the history of laws and societies that were made to help Native Americans get the justice they deserve. In 1778, to try and cease conflict between each other, the Americans and the Natives signed a peace treaty which is known as the Treaty of Fort Pitt or is also known as the Treaty with the Delawares. During his late life in 1803, James Van, who had Native blood in him, helped the Cherokee Indians by building them houses and stores as well as providing them with jobs as his vessels. In 1810, through powerful yet gracious speeches, Tecumseh expressed the injustices Natives still faced to President Harrison, and even though he hated the American military, he showed respect to the President throughout all his speeches. In 1832, a Supreme Court case, which is known as Worcester v. Georgia, ruled that Native Indians must be viewed as individual nations and cannot be controlled by any other party. In 1868, Eustace S. Grant passed a law to get rid of the fake Indian agencies and replace them with Christian missionaries who taught the natives how to read and write as well as how to farm. In 1911, the Society of American Indians held their first meeting and was the first group to discuss and fight for native rights on the U.S. mainland. Shortly after, in 1914 and in 1915, the Alaskan Native Brotherhood and Sisterhood was founded to fight for Native rights like the Society of American Indians and to share knowledge, wisdom, and beauty of Native tribal societies as their mission goal states. In Alaska 1944, Alberta Schnecks gets arrested for sitting in the whites-only section of a theater, which causes protests and the questioning of Native rights. A year after this incident, Elizabeth Perchevik testifies for this case and successfully gets the Alaskan Equal Rights Act of 1945 to pass. The American Indian Movement was founded in 1972 by the famous Native activist Dennis Banks, who was known for always protecting Indian traditions and was always engaged in Native-related cases. For example, he was able to convince Kentucky and Indiana to pass a law against the desecration of Native Indian graves and human remains. This is all you will hear from me. And on the next episode of Tribulation, Lloyd will talk about the history of injustices Native Americans had to endure. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. Welcome, intrepid listeners. My name is Julius Boone, and you're listening to the second episode of Tribulation. In the previous episode, my friend Jamie completed a historical recap of the Native American culture and race. In this episode, I will discuss the injustice that was faced in the past and present. Native Americans have been facing injustice for centuries. It started in the early 17th century on American soil with the settling of the first colony, Jamestown, in what is now known as Virginia, USA. Mistreatment and war was extremely common between the natives and the settlers. This conflict continued on into the late 18th century when American colonists were fighting for independence from Great Britain. 
the freedom to exterminate Indians and to take their land was one of the main objectives of the colonists' drive for independence, quotes one source. The colonists were fighting for the natural rights of life, liberty, and property. However, by taking the land of the natives by force, they stripped away all three of those rights from them. Their life, liberty, and especially property. Generations of land that was passed down to tribal leaders, all taken away by colonists who lived there for maybe a hundred years. Moving along in history, however, over 50 years after the end of the American Revolutionary War, America faced a new primary executive, Andrew Jackson. His infamous presidency labeled his term in office as the Jacksonian period. During this time, a conflict arose regarding the relocation of the now dwindled population of the natives. Many settlers were wanting to move into new territories such as Georgia and other places. The Supreme Court case, Worcester versus Georgia, ruled in favor of the Cherokee Nation and against President Jackson. This landmark case stated that it was the constitutional right of the Congress to move natives, not the states. However, this did not stop Andrew Jackson. And in 1838 and 1839, 14,000 natives were forced to march through Tennessee, Kentucky, Illinois, Missouri, and Arkansas to New Indian Territory, with the American army watching their every move as an escort. This event is known by most as the Trail of Tears, or Nuna Dal Suni in the Cherokee language. About 4,000 or 8,000 perished in this mass removal of Native Americans. In 1887, the Dawes Severalty Act, also known as the General Atonement Act of 1887. This act divided Native lands into individual plots of land amounting to 160 acres per head of household. Any land left after this could then be sold to white settlers. The result? A loss of millions of acres of land that were once tribal population. We may know about the previous mistreatment of the Native Americans, how they were removed from their land, or how they faced mass genocide by some of the settlers. However, there are modern examples of injustice. For instance, in the late 1970s, land was still illegally being sold to Caucasian buyers. This led to a movement known as the Native American Power Movement that erupted across the country. We're going to focus on a problem that is still being faced today, and that is dis domestic disruption. One article states, the scholars trace the widespread removal of Native American children from their homes and communities as far back as the inception of the boarding school system. This was an effort to quote-unquote civilize the offspring of the proud natives. This problem lasted from the 20th century to current times. It is true that abuse and neglect do occur in some Native American homes, but there are extraneous reasons for this. Since the conditions of reservations were deteriorating and no assistance was being provided, Social workers with ethocentric criteria removed Native American children from their homes. This resulted in the unfair mass removal of Native children from their homes. There are even problems in sports. Many sports fans were debating whether a sports team should change their name from a derogatory Native American slang term. This 
debate lasted for so long that now, at 2020, they finally changed the name to just the state name. Clearly, there are problems that still occur. There are countless other examples not mentioned in this podcast. The Native American race and culture has faced different forms of attack, but their war is still the same. In the next episode, my friend Malachi will discuss some legal injustices that Native Americans face. This is Julius Boone, and I thank you for tuning in on this episode of Tribulation. Stay true and continue learning. Welcome to the next episode of Tribulation. In today's episode, I will be talking a little about the legal injustice of the Native American people. So to start off, Native Americans have started to develop their own legal justice system. In the 1930s, the federal government started to encourage tribes to develop a legal justice and court system. And a good thing to point out is that after the Worcester versus Georgia case, in which Georgia wanted more control over the Native American tribes, the federal government decided that they would be the only ones to interact with tribal nations. This had apparently created points of conflict. After this, in 1934, it was then decided that the government uh, had wanted to try to encourage tribes to create their own court systems. Another good story to talk about is that natives from Ramapo in New Jersey have faced injustice by stating that the Mawa Township has interfered with their religious assembly by saying too many people are on native properties. The United States has contended that the township has interfered with the Ramapo religion. Um, so then... This is also a good discussion. So, natives have decided that they want their tribal cases to be moved to the state and federal courts, and having courts consider prior convictions in tribal courts. But there are too many complexities that occur when a crime happens in a tribal jurisdiction, so it makes it hard to really talk about it in a U.S. government court. Another story I would like to talk about is how the border wall plan was going to affect the Native American nation of Tahano Autumn, which is split in between the United States and Mexico, but this this nation has existed long before either uh, countries have existed. So in a video titled, at U.S.-Mexico border, a tribal nation fights a wall that would divide them. And this video is published by PBS News. 
So, in the video, a man named Verlin Jose, the vice chairman of the nation, has said that it would be detrimental to their people and it would have a psychological and emotional effect on these people. There are 32,000 members of the tribe that live in the U.S., but there are 2,000 that live in Mexico, and there are also, um, like, holy places in Mexico that the tribal people consider to be holy so they want access to those so they don't want the wall built there are special access points that only members of the tribe can go through but some border patrol agents say that some members of the tribe are abusing their power and making money for mexican cartels who want to smuggle drugs into the United States to distribute and sell. Puerto Hueto, who is the president of Border Patrol, has said that tribal members, or some tribal members, were convicted of drug running and that the tribe could do more to prevent it from happening, but they just don't. But some members of the tribe um, say that they have experienced harassment from Border Patrol agents, like the rancher Francisco Venezuela, who said that he's been stopped and searched multiple times and even had a gun pointed at him during these searches. So, in more recent news, though, it seems that the border wall will not be completed due to Joe Biden being the next president of the United States. So Trump would not be able to build the border wall anymore. and Joe Biden will most likely cancel production of it. That is all for this episode. I am Alki Nelson. The next episode will be about the progress made for Native Americans and justice. Hello everyone, and welcome back to the Tribulation Podcast. If you don't know me already, I'm Jamin, and on this fourth episode, I will be discussing what progress has been made and what its effects has on Natives today. Charles Curtis was the first Native American to be elected Senator on January 23, 1907, and to be elected Vice President on March 4, 1929, with Herbert Hoover as President. Through Mr. Curtis's time as Senator, he passed the Curtis Act of 1898, which helped Native Americans be recognized as U.S. citizens and allowed them to vote in U.S. elections, as well as building them towns and establishing public schools for those who wished to have an education. While this act only was affected in the Oklahoma area of the U.S., the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924 officially grants citizenship to Native Americans who are born in the U.S. We can also see in 1934 the Indian Reorganization Act, which allowed Natives to have more control over their tribes and responsibilities, as well as to decrease the United States federal control over their affairs. Through this law, this has encouraged Natives to establish their own legal system, which is funded by the government, and through their legal system, they are able to exercise different types of jurisdiction that no one has ever thought of before. Also because of the Reorganization Act, Natives have established their own health care system, which is also funded by the government. Through this health care system, the government is taking full responsibility for any Native American's health and taking care of any health needs they may have. 
For more information about the IHS, Sean will go into more detail about it on episode 6. In 1978, on an unspecified date, an event called The Longest Walk, which was led by Dennis Banks, took place where many walked from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. The protests about 11 bills that threatened the rights of Native Americans, as well as land and water rights. By July 15, about 2,000 people reached Washington, D.C. to express their feelings. Because of this event, none of the 11 bills were passed and the Religious Freedom Act of 1978 was passed, allowing Native Americans to have special ownership over sacred property, which includes land and special items and objects, as well as preserving their old custom and traditions. This event was repeated three more times in 2008, 2011, in 2013, the fight against land and environmental rights, against diabetes, and reaffirming the United States that they are still a nation of people. Lastly, many in 2017 were upset about a team in the NFL called the Redskins because this team's name was an offensive term. This caused many to protest to have their name changed, which proved successful because now, in 2020, their name is the Washington football team. Sean will also go into more detail about this story. This is all the time you have for me, so I thank you all for listening to this episode of Tribulation and hope you all have a great day. Hello everyone, this is episode number 5 of Tribulation. I am Solomon Blunt and in this episode I will be sharing some real life stories coming from Native Americans about the injustices and incidents that have occurred in the United States. An incident happened in 2015 with Justin Bear, a Native American chaperone, chaperoned dozens of Native students to see a hockey game in South Dakota. And during the game, um, during their period to be more specific, a white man poured beer on two Native students and began calling them with racial uh, slurs. The other chaperones that were on the, sh- on the trip had witnessed this incident and had reported it to the court. However, the court had deemed that the claim could not be proven in court, so it was dismissed. This news infuriated Justin Bear since he sought justice and justice was not served. And this isn't the only incident. There are many other Native American athletes who reside in the United States who experienced these actions. And according to the High Country News, there have been 52 reported cases of racial discrimination directed at Native Americans. Discrimination was emitted through different methods such as racial vandalism, um, social media posts uh, such as tweets or Instagram posts or whatever social media there is nowadays. You have banners and even verbally. So violent quotes and inappropriate quotes such as, um, hey Indians get ready for trial of tears part two or being called a wagon burner or dirty Indians. Obviously these are not nice words. And if you didn't get the Trial of Tears reference, it's a reference in history when in the, in the 19th century, uh, the United States government forcefully relocated thousands of Native Americans, which was supported by Andrew Jackson, and it was under the Indian Removal Act of 1830. Now, going back to the hockey game incident, the, the experience reminded Justin Bear of the exact same treatment he got during his high school basketball game in the 1990s. And he says, 
when you hear the words go back to the res or you're getting called different names it's a shock moment says justin bear justin bear was a sad was very sad at the time um about the hockey game because his son who was only eight who was in eighth grade at the time is already experiencing this kind of racism and according to high country news again between the years of 2008 and 2018 there have been at minimum 52 reported incidents that have occurred in high school sports events and out of those 52 only half of them resulted in disciplinary actions and the rest um have received disciplinary actions another story very similar to this hockey incident is coming from vice chairman of the crow cry Sioux tribe barry thompson who testified on racism against native american athletes he was a former coach himself in 2002 his team traveled to miller south dakota to play a basketball game uh the grandparents from the other team was shouting derogatory comments towards him and his team students and after the game for a team meal at dairy queen a group of players from the game pulled up to the in their car and began yelling at, to, at him um the coach and his team and once they finished yelling those players fired uh a shotgun in the air all over their heads multiple times and this doesn't just happen in sports um it also happens in the education system as well for example the wolf point school district in montana which is recent in 2019 uh, was publicly acknowledged for that their education systems promote racial inequality and discrimination towards its students in the district three-fourths of its population are native americans or they're mixed an investigation was planned by the education department of civil rights uh, to determine if disciplinary actions are biased if the, if the district appropriately handles racial um, harassment cases and anything else that falls under the lines of discrimination. Luella Contreras, a grandmother of a student who attended the district, had filed a report about her bullying case, but the administration from this district dismissed the issue and even her. In 2017, the Fort, Fort Peck Asadabone and Suex tribe alleged the, that the district was promoting, um, actually providing limited academic resources and social support uh, for Native students. And according to federal education data in the Wolf Point District, it is two times more likely for a Native student to get disciplinary actions as compared to their white peers. It is also 10 times more likely for a white student to take AP courses rather than uh, Native students. And as a result of the academic atmosphere, some Native students have taken their lives or have done self-harm to themselves. Three months ago, before the tribes um, has done an executive board complaint, one senior had committed suicide due to the principal's public rebuke for poor attendance. So as Roxine says it, instead of providing a safe learning environment, the Wolf Point School District adds to the long history of educational abuses of our tribunal uh, tribal communities. Now entering the adult world of racial discrimination for Native Americans, I have a job discrimination story that was published by North Carolina Plug Radio Station, um, Howie Echo Hawk. 
was a bartender about a few years ago in Seattle when he began experiencing discrimination on the job. One story that comes to mind was when his manager was demanding him to have a respectable um, haircut. Here's how Howie uh, describes the situation. I had a mohawk, which is like the traditional style of my people, and I wore it because of that. And so Echo Hawk is a member of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma. And so rather than to argue, he agrees and just cuts off his hair, just like his boss had told him to. And then a few months later, he broke his ankle and had something and had to take some time off. But coming back, um, actually, I'll let Howley say what happened. When I finally came back to work, one of the managers there told me that's what happens when you Indians get your fire water. And so I uh, filed a complaint very quickly and basically put in my two weeks notice. Yep. And unfortunately, this is all that I have for this episode. This episode was really designed to give you a better understanding of what Native Americans have gone through and what they uh, might be going through now. And this is fairly recent, by the way. So I hope you're able to imagine or see what um, they have to deal with, whether it's on a daily basis, if if it happens occasionally, every now and then, and so on. And in the next episode, you will learn more about the injustices in today's world. Thank you for listening, and have a great day. Peace. Hello, my name is Sean Fowler, and this is episode 6 of the Tribulation Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to talk about the status of the Native American injustice today, as in this year, and maybe give or take a couple years before. So, in the episodes prior, we've talked a lot about Native American injustice in the past and how things were back in the day, say from the 1700s to maybe the early 1900s. So for this episode, I'm going to talk about how things are in the present. So first, let's talk about the things we still need to fix that are originally supposed to help Native Americans. Many of the old institutions and laws that were created in the past aren't doing what they're supposed to. For instance, take the Indian Health Service. The Indian Health Service was established in 1955, and it's supposed to give Indian, or Native Americans rather, access to equal health care that everyone else has access to, but it doesn't give equal health care at all. Nurses, misdiagnosed minors, staff at IHS hospitals can't administer basic drugs, and overall all the IHS hospitals put patients in jeopardy rather than help them. This is considered injustice to me because these ill-trained staff members aren't fired or retrained. Instead, they get transferred to another hospital where they'll still continue to fail their job. And sometimes they even get a pay raise for it, which is ridiculous. So, I mean, we could probably fix this issue by maybe allocating more funds to the IHS as all these issues stem from the fact that the entire organization is severely underfunded like the public defender's office. Here's another example, the lack of true restitution from the government. So, there's a common argument floating around that true restitution will never be possible. This is made by many Native Americans according to an article I found on EBSCO. So, the government originally claimed responsibility for the natives with 
the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which was founded in 1824. Since they claimed responsibility, they left the task of paying the Indians for whatever was lost completely up to them. And the natives have received the money. I mean, money the money that they received and that they'll ever receive will never be able to replace the destroyed lives and culture that was lost due to forced assimilation. But nonetheless, monetary restitution was given. So the Indian Claims Commission in 1946 gave 1.3 billion U.S. dollars to over 176 different groups. Yet it only amounted to about $1,000 per person, which in this day of age is not enough to do anything at all. Further monetary support, according to some of the bureaucrats running a couple of these organizations, could mean trouble for taxpayers. So, this problem is still standing, and it's probably going to stand for a long time. But, I'm sure there is something we could do to fix this. Nothing comes to mind for me, but something could definitely come to mind for anyone listening, or anyone at all, really. Among these two issues, there's also child care issues going on. So, the Indian Child Welfare Act establishes the standards for which families foster or adopt Native American children. The, they also allow, it all, the Indian Child Welfare Act also allows tribes to become involved in child welfare cases in court. So, foster care court cases where the ICWA, which is Indian Child Welfare Act for short, so apply, go relatively unnoticed because many attorneys have never dealt with such issues before. Um, simple training or enhanced training for all types of cases that an attorney could come in contact with would probably fix this issue pretty pretty well. Um, that or, I mean, maybe funding. We can't throw money to fix problems for everything, so further funding, I guess, could fund the training that would be needed, but really I think it's just lack of training that needs to be addressed for that problem. So besides all of the old laws and institutions that still fail to do their job correctly, of which there are plenty more beyond this list, I guarantee you, we also need to generally improve Native American quality, li quality of life. So as it stands now, the quality of life of Native Americans is usually pretty poor. I mean, poor literally, like monetarily and figuratively. So there's still lots of general racism, and I'm sure you got a good idea of how racist people were in Episode 5, ran by Solomon. Uh, so there's that to address, and I mean, again, and now... Many, 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 excuse me, many Native Americans are pretty poor, and it's quite shocking, really. According to the 2010 census, which is about a decade old, so I'm sure the numbers have doubled since then, there are about 5 million Native Americans and indigenous peoples living in the United States, and one in three of those people live with a median income of less than $23,000 a year which is well below the poverty line in 2020. I think the poverty line now is about 43,000, 46,000. It's somewhere near there, near the 40, 50,000s. So, yeah, a lot of people are still living below the poverty line. So it's really hard to participate in anything outside of a reservation where having more money really matters. Now, there's a ton of ways to fix the poverty issue. I know it's been addressed with many different groups of people in the past. Um, 
I know for a fact that more job opportunities could help in the public world since I know discrimination for all sorts of races and ethnicities such as African Americans, Asian Americans, and Native Americans now, and Hispanic Americans still affect people today. It's still really hard to find a job when everyone or when some people act the way they do, and it's really unfortunate. So I think after the general racism issue is resolved, and we'll talk about that more later, there are some things being done to counteract this. I think that would really bring more Native American families outside of the poverty line. They can go and get more jobs. They'll be more accepted in the normal world. But we still have to make steps to get there. Uh, let's see what else. So I know everything I've, most of the things I've listed so far have been negative, but we have made a lot of good progress. There is, we haven't, there's not all bad things that I have to talk about today. So. Here, let me start with this. So a lot of systemic racism has been brought to our attention due to the many police brutality incidents, such as the unfortunate George Floyd incident. And in an article that, I'm a, that I got my information about the Redskins, which we'll talk about more in a minute, according to the author, and I, mean, I agree with this too, it has triggered a national widespread movement to end this said systemic racism which has included tearing down statues of Civil War generals and changing flags, names, logos, mascots, and many other namesakes. So, this national widespread movement led to the idea of changing the Washington Redskins football team name. So, as you may have guessed, the word Redskins is a derogatory term to refer to the indigenous. And... It's in their name, which is a big problem. So some of the team's sponsors actually started to take action. For beginners, FedEx, which is the team's main sponsor, owners of FedEx Field, have asked them to change their name. And Redskins merchandise has mysteriously disappeared from some Nike stores as well. And this case with the Redskins name has also caused other mascots like Aunt Jemima and Uncle Ben to be phased out too. Now it's just an idea there has I have um, been told that there are uh, that some sources have said that they're going to keep the name, but the fact the fact that the idea of changing their name has been brought to their attention is still really good. I think someone said that the nation that lived nearby, the indigenous nation, had agreed and actually supported the use of redskins. So uh, systemic racism being ended widespread nationally, it's still really great progress. And it's a definite step in the right direction. Um, besides the Redskins, there's also a recent Supreme Court case, McGirt v. Oklahoma, which was happened around July 9th this year, had affirmed the Creek Tribe Territory in the state of Oklahoma. So what this means is crimes committed by the indigenous have to be prosecuted by tribal government bodies. They cannot be tried by the state or local government bodies, only by the tribe. And this was done because after the Trail of Tears in, 18, in the 1830s, land in Oklahoma was promised to the Creek Nation, whose native lands are, or used to be, in modern-day Alabama and Georgia. After they were relocated and after Oklahoma became a state, they didn't know if the Oklahoma Reservation would remain as theirs or not. Luckily, this case fixed that problem and had affirmed it as theirs. So they are there to stay, and that land is theirs, which is great. There's been many arguments over land restitution because after the natives have all been relocated due to the American dream and expanding westward, they 
they lost a lot of land, and that land was sacred to many of them. Their religion had made that land sacred. The Native American tribes were very big on animals and being one with nature, and how I know how important that was to them. So losing their land like that must have been a huge, huge disappointment, a really big blow to their culture. But now that they're getting some land actually affirmed to them is great news. In other news, the Dakota Access Pipeline is being shut down as well. So, this is being brought up because of a lawsuit made by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe. The pipeline that was owned by Energy Transfer was polluting the water in the Sioux Tribe Reservation nearby, which is about a mile away from where the Dakota Access Pipeline is. The natives argued that it should never have been built there in the first place. It's a violation of their space, and it's affecting their lives and human needs. They use that water to clean and to drink, and now it's being polluted by oil, which is not good. Many of the, the, the company owner, for one, and many other people who sided with the company said that, argued that if, if, if the pipeline were gotten rid of, it would possibly be even worse for the environment than it already is due to carbon emissions from transporting the oil via railway. Uh, would, they also said that they would lose billions of dollars in royalties, and this was said by energy transfer themselves. Judge Boasberg, appointed by President Obama, conducted an environmental review of the pipeline, and they said that they found that not enough research and preparation in case of an oil spill had been done when the when the pipeline was being built, and that the effects on the quality of life for the reservation would be tremendously controversial if an oil spill were to happen. Not only would it pollute the waterways nearby, it would also drive out many animals, many of which are either sacred or very important for their daily needs. They need to eat something, and they can't eat anything when everything is polluted by the oil water when the crops are polluted by growing it with the oil water, or when all the animals are dying from oil sickness, or some other sickness. Either way, polluting the, oil, the, the waterways being polluted by the Dakota Access Pipeline, if there were an oil spill, would affect many more, many more aspects of life than just water. It would affect animals, it would affect them, plants, and it would be awful for everybody nearby. So that's great. That's being shut down. So, overall, there's been a lot of bad things. Like, I know in the past, these could have been seen as steps in the right direction. They definitely were. And it is a step in the right direction. It's great that they're here now, but we need to, we need to fix and reorganize what was made, as well as improve the quality of life of the Native Americans now. So, thank you for listening to Episode 6, and now here comes Episode 7 with Solomon once again talking about the ultimate goal and what we, and what, uh, let's see, what justice for Native Americans might look like in the future. All the stories about uh, progress that was made today have all been found using the New York Times. All the articles were posted around July this year. So if you want to look more into that, please go look for yourself and come up with some conclusions on your own. I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. Hello everyone, this is episode number seven. Unfortunately, this is the last and final episode of Tribulation. 
I'm Solomon Blunt. As you may already know, if you watched the ep uh, the fifth episode of Tribulation. If you haven't already, I highly encourage you to listen to episode number five or any of the other previous episodes that you did not listen to. So now continuing on, assuming that you have listened to the previous episodes, um, you've been given a brief explanation about the timeline of the Native Americans fight for justice throughout history. You've also been introduced to the injustice uh, that has been done in Native American history, the legal injustice, the antidotes, and the status of Native American injustice in today's world. But one topic that we haven't discussed yet, and what I believe is the most important one, is understanding what the ultimate goal is for Native Americans. What does full justice mean for Native Americans, and what does it look like? These questions will be answered in this episode, but before I answer this, um, those questions, I need to introduce you to some of the Native American organizations that are scattered across the United States. And also to, uh, to inform you of their purpose or goal. So first, we have the American Indian Movement, which was founded in 1944 to represent the tribes and to resist federal government pressure for termination of tribal rights and assimilation of their people. Then you also have the National Congress of American Indians, which was also founded in 1944 to improve the life of American Indians. Then you have another one, the Restor Restoring Justice for Indigenous Peoples. Uh, they work to expose and address the disparities of California, California's Indigenous Peoples. And some of the other initiatives are to provide support for the impacted families through advocacy, healing circles, and by creating survivor-centered spaces. Another one would be Healing the System Impacted Native Youth. And the last one would be to that they also inspire native their native community to spread stories through um through the media and then another one we had the environmental justice for tribes and indigenous peoples which this organization is underneath the united states environmental protection agency so their purpose is to protect the environment and public health and to address the environmental justice concerns in indian country so all of these organizations have a similar, have different but yet um, similar goals, if you know what I mean. So we have one organization that simply wants to improve their life on American Indians. Why wouldn't you? And you have other that addresses the disparities of, of indigenous peoples still improving their life. Um, to res there's another one that wants to resist the termination of triple rights and assimilation of their people. And then you have another one that um, protects the environment and public health as well. So we all can pretty much agree that everyone wants to be treated equally, especially the Native Americans. If you see in my episode, episode number five, um, we know that that hasn't entirely been the case. So for example, um, we want laws to apply as equal to white people. So the same rights that other citizens have should still apply to Native Americans, given that they are U.S. citizens. Um, equal school systems are should have e equal opportunities for Native people. So as a reminder, in the education realm for Native Americans, they aren't as successful, which is due to many factors, but as we discussed in episode number five, is mainly due to the injustices done to them. And also, again, um, 
having the laws apply the same as, as a white person. But we know that not everyone's going to follow the law, and that's perfectly fine. But we need, but those people need to be um, held accountable for not following the law. So here's a quote that I have gotten from the Arizona State University um, from War Chief Joseph in 1941, and here's what it quotes. I know my race must change. We cannot hold our own with the white men as we are. We only ask an even chance to live as the other men live. We ask to be recognized as men. We ask the same law shall work alike on all men. If an Indian breaks the law, punish him by the law. If the white man breaks the law, punish him also. We want the same rights. Native Americans want the same rights. Um, another main goal is to um, freely express their religion. So, because of the injustices done to them, they also believe um, that they they're not able to freely express the religion and also to safely practice their religion. So Native Americans have this big issue um, where they aren't able to practice their religion on U.S. ground or on public U.S. ground. So because of that, they believe that their First Amendment is violated because they supposedly have the right to religion. The U.S. mainly says yes, but there are severe restrictions, and as I said earlier, they're not able to practice the religion in public, for example. So they're going to have to reserve a spot, a private um, area or whatever, and then they'll be able to um, practice the religion. So this is the end of the episode in the series for Tribulation. On behalf of me, Solomon, Sean, Lloyd, Julius, uh, Jamin, and Malachi, we would like to thank you for listening to our podcast. We hope that you enjoyed it, and maybe later in the future, we will see these changes in a world that benefits everyone. Again, thank you very much, and have a good day.